Well, if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. Obviously, um, we're still all probably celebrating Christmas to one degree or another. We still have another Christmas uh, party to go to at uh, Jan's sister's this afternoon, and many of you may still have other things that you're doing Christmas-wise. Obviously, at Christmas time, we celebrate the gift of God's Son, and we talked about the fact that Christmas is, in a sense, a celebration of a delivery that's been made. Just like Amazon delivering a gift to your front door, and you get the notification that there is a gift there, um, the angels announce the arrival, the deliverance of a Savior for the world. Uh, The question is, as it is highlighted in John chapter 1, is whether or not we'll go to the door and receive the gift or not. Because it tells us in John 1 that even though uh, a child is born, a son has been given, Israel, for the most part, did not receive that gift at that time. And so the issue is whether or not we will receive the gift. We've been given a Savior who is also Lord. And if we receive him as Savior and as Lord then we benefit in light of all that he's promised us. And the question, obviously, at this time of year, as we close this year and we'll soon begin another year, is how do I live in light of the fact that God has given me the gift of his son and by his grace, by his grace, I've received that gift? How do I walk forward? And so uh, even though we're just... Just uh, one day past Christmas, we already begin to look forward to the new year. And that's what I'd like to do this morning is just highlight some things for us to remind us of some things as we begin this week uh, to think about the last year and to look forward to the next year to remind us of some things that are said in 1 Thessalonians 5 that hopefully will help us as we consider how to think about the new year and how to live in this new year. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from John Piper that I mentioned uh, recently to Eric and Melody um, is the idea that when you go into parenting, you go into parenting feeling very inadequate. Then when you're out of parenting, in terms of the, your kids having left the nest, so to speak, you feel very guilty. But that is if you understand on the front end what is really expected of you, and if you're able to properly evaluate what you've actually done in your parenting. Because when you really look at what you're called to as a parent, as you're going into it, you recognize, I cannot do this on my own. I am not adequate for these things. And yet all of us tend to think, oh, yeah, when I get to be a parent, I'm going to do this and this and this. I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And we get into it and we realize uh, we're not any different than the other people that we tended to think, oh, I could have done that a little better, I think. And we realize that we're all in the same boat. We all struggle uh, to be the parent we need to be. And then as we look back on it, we see how we could have done things better and we could have loved better. We could have been wiser. We could have been more consistent. We could have done things differently. And so parenting is just one aspect of life. And there's the reality that all of life is like that. We, If we see things rightly and we look at life through the Bible, through the truth, we recognize we're not adequate for life. And if we look back on the year and we evaluate how our life went over the last year, if we see the truth, we recognize that we have a lot to 
feel guilty for, to, to see our failure, to see our weakness, to see our inadequacy, or, or however we want to put it. And so First uh, Thessalonians 5, as I read through it and thought about it this week, is a great chapter for just kind of getting a, a, a microcosm of the Christian life view and of evaluating our lives and trying to find some encouragement in light of our inadequacies as well as in light of whatever guilt we might feel or sense of failure that we might feel. This was actually one of the first letters, some people believe the first letter that Paul wrote to any of the churches that he founded. And so uh, as you and I evaluate last year, which hopefully we will, that's a good thing to look back on the year and try to evaluate our relationships, our, our family life, our work life, church life, and otherwise. That's a good thing to do, is to ask the question, okay, how do I evaluate these things? Then secondly, what am I praying for the new year? What do I really want to see happen? I assume that what we really want to see happen is what we pray about, that those desires are turned into prayers one way or the other. So uh, what are we praying for? What do we want to see happen in the new year? And a verse that's very helpful, I think, both in terms of evaluating the past and in terms of praying for the future is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, which says, but, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I'm not going to read the whole chapter right now, but I'm going to actually bring it into our discussion as we go along because I want us to... F- Think about what Paul is saying here because he's calling us to live a certain way. And the first thing that he does is he highlights the fact that we are to uh, see our present as something that's to be shaped by the future. Our present should be about the future. The very first thing that Paul says in this, this verse is, but since we are of the day. And one of the things we can question uh, ourselves in regard to is how much does the future impact what I do today? Am I thinking only about today or this week or next year? Or am I thinking about the future in the way that Paul is talking about the future here? Which raises the question, what does he mean when he says we are of the day? He says in verses 1 through 5, now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you as a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So there are two ways in which Paul talks about the idea of day in this passage. You'll notice uh, in verse 5 he says, You are all sons of light and sons of day. So what does it mean to be a son of day? Well, in other places in the Bible it talks about the day of salvation. The day of salvation has a reference to the proclamation of the gospel after the resurrection of Christ. And so the day of salvation is right now when the gospel is being proclaimed. And to be of the day is to receive the light of the gospel, to actually receive the gospel and to trust Christ. 
And so to be of the day means because I have received the gift of Jesus, now my whole life has changed because once I was in darkness and now all of a sudden I see things differently. It's kind of like um, C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it or the sun, but because by it I see everything else. And so through the proclamation of the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we've come to see the sun, S-O-N, and now we see everything else in light of the sun, S-O-N. Our lives have been changed, so we're of the day. We can't help, uh, because we've been born again, to see life differently than we did before we came to know Christ. So that's part of what he's talking about when he says we are of the day. But he also highlights that there's another day he's talking about. It says in verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So he's talking about also the end of time. He's talking about the day when Jesus will return. He will rescue his people. He will judge all men. He will rid this world of evil and suffering. And he will establish heaven on earth. The day of the Lord. And so those who are of the day are also those who are prepared for judgment. They're prepared for the return of Christ. They're prepared for what is going to happen in the future when God brings everything to a consummation. And so that's what he has in mind. And it's an encouragement to us because Martin Luther would say, as I've said before, there are two days on my calendar, today and that day. And what do you mean by that day? He meant the day of the Lord. When Christ would return and everything would be consummated, when we would all stand before Christ. And so the question has to be for all of us as we think about what happened this past year and as we look forward to the new year, am I considering both the fact that I am now of the day, that I am a believer and I am to live in light of the gospel, and I'm to live in light of the fact that Christ will one day return and will uh, reward me for my faithfulness. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, do I make decisions based on that perspective? Our present should be about the future. The second thing that he highlights is we should be very serious about happiness this next year. Indeed, every year. And what I mean by that is he says um, in verse 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. Now, soberness, we have to ask, is something that um, obviously has reference to not being sober or being drunk. And so the question is, what does he mean by being sober? If you look at verses, uh, the last part of verse 5 and uh, through verse 7, he says, We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. So there are two things that he mentions. He mentions uh, in verse 7, those who sleep and those who get drunk. So soberness is about not sleeping but being alert, not being drunk but being under control. So to sleep is to just kind of go through life like a zombie, I'm just doing my routine, I'm just doing my thing, and I'm just totally oblivious uh, to what's going on. And what I mean by what's going on is what God says is true about what's going on. 
that there is a coming day of the Lord, that there there has been the deliverer, or excuse me, the delivery of the Son of God, that there are people who are going through life as if none of these things have happened, that Christ has not come and that Christ is not coming. To be alert means I know that he's come and I know that he's coming and I'm living my life in light of that. And then obviously to another aspect of that is to not be a frat boy. Okay, what does it mean to be a frat boy? Well, fraternity boys have the reputation of just being party people. They just look for the weekend. They can't wait to just have pleasure. And Paul is saying, be alert to the realities, live your life in light of the realities, and don't simply live for the pleasure that's right in front of you. Live in light of the fact that there is a day of the Lord. He's not saying throw out your desire for pleasure or your desire for happiness or your your desire for joy. He's saying don't be like Esau who traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. What this world offers us at best is a bowl of stew. What God offers us is full and lasting joy. And so if you live your life in light of the bowl of stew, then you lose out. As Jan said earlier, if we gain the whole world, but we lose our soul, if we live for the pleasures of this life, but not for the pleasures of life to come, then we actually miss out. Someone has described the idea of um, getting drunk this way, that it involves a choice to consume alcohol. It involves giving control of your life to the influence of the alcohol, and it results in changed behavior. And so how do you apply that to life in the spirit as Paul does? Or how do you apply that to uh, being sober spiritually? Well, you choose to pursue life in light of the truth. You submit your life by God's grace to the truth that you find in the word, and your life is changed by choosing to follow Christ and submitting yourself to his word. Your life is changed, becomes under the control of the Holy Spirit. And all of that is about the idea of being serious about happiness. C.S. Lewis is one of the people that would talk about that. He says there's a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. That when you really realize that there's true happiness to be found, that this world can never give, it makes you serious about pursuing that. He said, the, said joy is the serious business of heaven. There is no doubt that there are people who are serious about pursuing their pleasure in this life. They'll do it for eight hours at a time, depending whatever they think is going to bring them happiness. And Paul is saying, be sober about where happiness is really found, where full and lasting joy is really found, and realize that Jesus said, these things I've commanded you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full, which means be serious about pursuing my joy, full and lasting joy, and give your life to doing what I've told you to do. That's being sober, recognizing where full and lasting joy is found, and realizing that Jesus has called us to live a certain way in terms of seriously pursuing that. And so as we think about the new year, then Paul encourages us to think about it in that sense soberly. We should be very serious 
about happiness, i.e. happiness in God. Excuse me, in God. And the next thing that we can see is we must take responsibility for where we are. The next thing Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 is, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on, having put on the breastplate, and it goes on from there. So the idea of putting something on. Um, now, all of us, before we came to church, put on clothes. And that's the picture that he, he's using there is clothe yourself in these things, that there's an appropriate clothing. Now, if all of you showed up in, in your PJs this morning or in your bathing suit or something, we would say, you know, that's not really appropriate um, to do that. You know, there's an appropriate clothing. And Paul is saying there are, there are appropriate ways for us to clothe our lives uh, as Christians. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, Actually, beginning in verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, he encourages us to encourage each other. And at the heart of that is he's encouraging us here in this passage to to, um, to honor the teaching ministry in the church. But the key thing is because of their work. And what is the work of the pastor teacher or the elders or others who do teaching in the body of Christ? It is to help us understand and apply the word of God. And so the, um, the key to putting on what Paul is talking about putting on here is the word of God, understanding what it means, understanding how it applies. And so when he encourages the believers here to honor the teaching ministry in the church in all kinds of ways, whatever way it might be manifesting itself in the body, he's saying this is how you put these things on. This is how you put on faith and hope and love is to the ministry of the word. The word of God is key for that. He goes on in verse 23. And 24, he says, uh, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he who also will bring it to pass. Paul says that we are responsible for putting on faith, hope, and love. But he also says that God is going to sanctify us. So how do you put those two things together? Paul says, you are responsible, I am responsible for putting on faith, putting on hope, putting on love. And he says, God himself will sanctify you entirely. He's faithful, he will do it. What it means is the sovereignty of God should not keep us from working hard. We trust God to do what only he can do, which is to change us, to give us faith, to give us hope, to give us love, to grow us. We trust him for his sovereign grace in our lives. But we also recognize the God who's sovereign over growth told Paul, uh, you need to plant, you need to cultivate, but I'll give the growth. And so God calls us to work hard, He calls us to fight, he calls us to endure He calls us to pursue things with all of our hearts, 
knowing that it's not based on our effort, but it is an act of submission to God. That it's, it's an act of saying, God, I trust you to do this in me. Therefore, I'm going to pursue it just like you told me to pursue it. I'm going to give myself to it because I'm trusting you to do in me what you said you would do. That's really important uh, because we live in a culture where people are saying things like this. If I don't have what you have, it's because you stole it from me. If I can't do what you do, it's because you're holding me back. If I'm not where I want to be, it's somebody else's fault. Those messages are being communicated over and over in our cultures in so many different ways that are basically saying that it's someone else's fault that I'm not where I need to be. And we have to be careful that that's a very natural thing. And it tends to be something that even as Christians, we can we can put it off on God and say, well, God, it's God's fault. I'm not trusting and loving and hoping as I should. We can even use the doctrine of God's sovereignty against him and to undermine his call to us to pursue faith and hope and love. Or we can say it's other people's fault. You know, if people around me weren't so irritating, I'd be much more patient and kind and loving. You know, it's other people's fault, even God's fault. Adam and Eve said it's the serpent's fault or it's that woman's fault. Really, it's God's fault. And we all naturally don't even realize how uh, we are so prone to basically put the blame someplace else in terms of where we are. But the Bible continually acknowledges that we desperately need God and cannot be where we need to be without him, and yet we are fully responsible for where we are. Can you put those two things together? That's what Paul wants us to do, is to put those two things together. Calvin said this, he said, obviously uh, he's highlighting the fact that um, we're in a war, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but he says we must wage war with our enemy, and he says idleness is too hazardous a thing in war. He says idleness is a hazardous thing. What kind of idleness is he talking about? Not pursuing faith, hope, and love. Whether we're uh, just assuming that it's going to happen uh, without our effort or, if we're, or whether we're blaming somebody else for it or waiting for God to do something or whatever, we can not take responsibility for working. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul talks about fighting the good fight of faith. Uh, the parable of the sower talks about bearing fruit with perseverance, meaning we, we have to keep working. We can't stop and, and give up. And so part of what we need to realize is that um, we have to take responsibility for where we are spiritually. And we need to give our lives to working on our faith and working on our hope and working on our love and as it's manifested in all of our relationships. But that brings us to the next point that there is a difficulty in all of it because he highlights that we must recognize that we dance in a minefield. And the question is, what do I mean by that? Well, he says that we're to put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Do you see yourself as being in the middle of a battle? We need to because that's the reality. That's the part of being alert is that uh, we're not at Disneyland in this world. As, as, as much fun as we might can have in various situations, we are in a war. 
And, and the reason we should see it that way is because the breastplate and the helmet are pieces of armor that you wouldn't wear to a Christmas party. You would wear it to a battle. That's the whole point. The breastplate uh, was something that would cover all this area, your torso, as well as the back. It was meant to protect your vital organs, meant to protect your heart. Uh, obviously, the helmet covered the head area and was meant to protect the head. If you would, look at verses 16 through 18, which I think helps us get a feel for why I say uh, we need to dance in the minefield. A minefield is something that's set by our enemies in a wartime. So why do I say dance in the minefield? On the one hand, Paul says you need to have armor on because you're in a war. But he also says in verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's the dance. Uh, to rejoice is to dance, or to dance is to rejoice. Uh, to give thanks is to be uh, obviously appreciative and joyful about what God has given. And to pray without ceasing is just another uh, reminder of the fact that we we dance dependently, <laughs> that we're continually dependent on God. But Paul is painting a picture here where he says, you're in a war and make sure you have the armor on that you need, but don't ever stop dancing. Even though you're in a minefield, keep rejoicing, keep giving thanks, keep praying. And to pray means you have confidence in God that he can meet your needs in the midst of the battle, whatever that may be. Um, there's a um, song by Andrew Peterson that's actually about marriage, but I think it can also be applied to life. Um, the song is called Dancing in the Minefields. And he says, And we're dancing in the minefields, we're sailing in the storms. This is harder than we dreamed. But I believe that's what the promise is for. That's what the promise is for. So when I lose my way, find me. When I lose, uh, lose love's chains, bind me. At the end of all my faith, till the end of all my days, when I forget my name, remind me. Because we bear the light of the Son of Man, so there's nothing left to fear. So I'll walk with you in the shadow lands till the shadows disappear. Because he promised not to leave us, and his promises are true. So in the face of all this chaos, he says to his wife, baby, I can dance with you. Or you could say, brother and sister, I can dance with you. I can dance with you in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the shadow lands, in the midst of things that are harder than we ever imagined in our lives. Why? Because of the promise. Because we can remind each other of our name, of who we are, of what Christ has done for us, that we need not lose heart. We can dance in the minefield, which means there are real dangers in this world. There's a real devil. There, there is a real world system that is out to destroy your faith, steal your joy. There are real enemies to your soul. That's what Paul is saying. There's a real war. And it's amazing how many people that have claimed the name of Christ have just walked away. And obviously we don't believe anyone who's truly been born again will ever walk away from Christ. They may fall into serious sin, but they won't 
ultimately and finally walk away. And yet we're just reminded all the time uh, that, that our faith is under attack. And we have to realize that. But the encouragement is, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, there's a shirt that both Frodo and Bilbo uh, wear. It's made out of mithril. And it's a very light metal that is immensely strong. And Frodo is attacked by this orc, and he, he throws his spear, and it hits Frodo. And they think he's dead, but he doesn't die. And someone comments on that because he's wearing this, this coat of mail, this chain mail. It says, The shirt prevented what would have been a lethal wound, leaving Frodo badly bruised but otherwise uninjured. There's no doubt in this life we will be badly bruised. There will be all kinds of things that will badly bruise us, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe mentally, maybe, maybe otherwise. We will be badly bruised, but our faith will not die. Our spiritual life will not die. We will still survive. And so the helmet and the uh, breastplate are like mithril. They're immensely strong. And though we may feel the bruises of this world and the challenges to our faith, and there will be sorrow and joy mixed together in this life, uh, nothing that will come our way will be lethal. We will make it. God will see to it that we make it. But he calls us to put on faith and hope and love. And so let me just briefly highlight what that actually is. Uh, the first thing is, he says, we need to put on the breastplate of faith. And so what is faith? Well, faith is basically trust in God's word. Whatever God says, he wants us to trust that it's true and he wants us to embrace it as true and he wants us to live like it's true. So faith means I believe God when he says something. Uh, we, none of us do that perfectly. None of us believe everything that God says as we should. And yet if we have saving faith, then we do believe what he has said about Christ and we seek to grow in our uh, belief in all that he has said, so that fundamentally we can say, especially in this context when it talks about hope and love, that faith uh, focuses on resting in Jesus in light of his finished work, resting in him for our forgiveness, resting in him for the promise of eternal life. It's interesting in verse 14, it says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I think it's helpful to connect verse 8 with verse 14 and realize that the three categories of people in verse 14 match the three things that Paul calls us to in verse 8. And so when he talks about help the weak, what kind of weak uh, people is he uh, referring to? I believe he's talking about the weak in faith. In other places, he talks about those who are weak in faith. What ways can we be weak in faith? We can be overwhelmed with the guilt and failure in our lives. And we need to be reminded of the finished work of Jesus. We need to be reminded that we have a Savior. 
We can be overwhelmed with our sin and our understanding of it and the weight of it and the guilt of it. And we need to be reminded that we're forgiven. Why do we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday? One reason is so that we can be reminded that we're forgiven for all the things we did this past week and this past year and this past lifetime. We need that reminder. We need to, it's meant to help the weak, those who are struggling with guilt and failure and a sense that God has rejected them. Why would God reject us if we've been forgiven? Why is there anything in our lives that we would be rejected for if we have been forgiven? Um, There's a game that Jonathan and his friends like to play called Bed Wars. And I thought about that. That's an interesting combination of Images, bed and war. And sometimes we can have trouble sleeping, right? Trouble resting. Um, But bed wars is really another picture of what God calls us to do because a bed is something that you're supposed to rest on. And you need to take your bed into the battle. Your bed needs to be a part of the battle. And what I mean by that is God wants us to work from a position of rest or fight from a position of rest. He wants us to seek to grow and seek to engage life, but at rest in Jesus for what he's done for us, knowing that we're forgiving, forgiven. Another picture is driving. It's amazing to me how laborious, how taxing driving can be. But you're sitting the whole time. It should be so restful. But the fact that you're resting doesn't mean there's no activity and there's no effort. And so there's a sense in which uh, we're driving through life and God says, sit in the seat of Jesus. Drive from a position of rest. But recognize there's going to be a lot of effort involved. There's a lot of concentration involved. There's a serious, excuse me, a seriousness about what's happening and you have to be alert to what's on the road and what's happening. There could be some really dangerous spots in the road. And so in one sense, you have to be resting in order to make the the trip. And yet you have to be active and working and fighting at the same time. Fighting, going to sleep, working at uh, getting to your destination. And yet at the same time, you don't want to drive with your eyes fixed on your rearview mirror. Right? Uh, We drive with our eyes fixed on our rearview mirror when all we're looking at is our guilt and our shame and our failure. And we can't lose sight of it. We can't move forward without running in and running over people as long as we're just looking out at our rearview mirror. We have to glance at that and then look at Christ. Keep our eyes on Christ. Keep our eyes on what he's done for us as we go along. And so Paul says that uh, uh, the foundational part of our breastplate, which covers our heart, which is a picture of our desires. Do you realize that your desires are based on what you believe? It's based on what you believe will um, meet your needs and satisfy your soul. So faith and desires go together. And so we have to have our hearts guarded so that we're trusting Jesus fundamentally for what he came to do, which is to rescue us from our sin. We need to work from a position of rest. Secondly, our feet must have 
um, excuse me, our faith must have feet. What I mean by that is he says not only already put on the breastplate of faith, but also another part of that breastplate is love. And again, verse 14 says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. What is admonishing the unruly about? I think it's about encouraging them to love when they're not loving. The unruly are those who are not living by the rules. What is the rule? Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. That's the rule. That's the commandment. That's how we're supposed to love. We're to love God and love others. And whenever we're found in a place where we're refusing to love and we're not pursuing love, we need to be admonished. We're we're to be corrected. We're to be encouraged. We're to be helped um, because we're called to love. And what does it mean to love? Well, love is obedient sacrifice for the good of others. That's one simple way to think about it. Obedient means I'm doing what God has told me to do. You can't love and disobey God. But it's also sacrifice because many times loving people is very costly. Just ask Jesus. Loving people is very costly in terms of time, effort, emotion, mental um, energy and money, everything. Uh, Loving people is a costly thing. So it's obedient sacrifice for the good of others. The good as God defines good uh, for their ultimate spiritual good as well as uh, practical, practical good as well. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is is a great illustration of what love is because he washed the feet of Judas, who was about to betray him. He washed the feet of Peter, who was about to deny him. And he washed all the other disciples' feet, and all of them ran away and left him. If our definition of love doesn't include those who betray us and deny us and run away from us, then we're not embracing true love. That's the bottom line. That's the real test of whether or not we're committed to loving is whether or not we love those who don't deserve it. Um, Even Jesus said, um, you know, the world loves those who love them. If you love those who love you, how is that any different than the world? He says, love those who don't love you. It's like C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. We think love is a a beautiful and wonderful thing or forgiveness is a wonderful thing until we've been deeply hurt and then we think it's the last thing that we want to do. We we see it as something as an ugly thing. How can I forgive that? And yet God calls us to love like Jesus did when he died for those who hated him. That's the love that he calls us to show. And so our faith must have feet which means our faith must lead us and free us to love like that, believing that I have been loved even though I don't deserve it. If in some sense I believe I was saved because I deserve it, then I will translate that to other people. But if I understand I was saved and I did not deserve it, I've been loved and I am loved even though I don't deserve it, then it will help to free me to love those who don't deserve it as well. Then finally, our faith must be far-sighted. That's the idea of the helmet, which is the hope 
of salvation, to be far-sighted, something in the future, something that is yet to come. He says in verses 9 and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. We will live together with him. So in one sense, we're rescued from wrath so that we could be rescued or delivered to him so that we could enjoy God, rescued from his wrath that we might enjoy his presence. And that is the hope that we have. And so um, the idea of hope, interestingly enough, in Hebrews 11, faith is defined as hope. So what does that mean? It means that hope is really a subset of faith, that hope is a function of faith, just like love is a function of faith. The Bible says faith works through love. So faith and love go together, faith and hope go together, but hope is focused on that which has not yet come yet. It's focused on promises for the future, whether it's promises for the next five minutes or promises for the next 500 years or whatever it might be. It's about the future. And I've told the story before about um, this well, and I've actually heard different accounts of this story, Uh, but the idea is there's this well out in the desert and there's this um, little um, can or bottle of water that's been left there with a note that says, uh, Oh, weary traveler, if you want to drink abundantly from this well, you need to use this water to prime the pump. If you drink any of the water before you use it to prime the pump, you will not have enough water to prime the pump, and you will not be able to be satisfied. And so you have to pour the water that's right there in front of you into the well to prime the pump, and then you'll have an abundance of water. And after you've had all that you need to drink, refill the bottle for the next person who comes along. So what is that a picture of? It's a picture of faith, but it's also more specifically a picture of hope that says, if I pursue what I was told to pursue, I will receive what I've been promised. And yet what, in, what is right in front of us can be so tempting. What if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't work? What if the well is dry? Then I die of thirst. But if I trust that the well isn't dry, and I trust that I can trust the message and the messenger, then I'll give up what is right in front of me to have what has been promised to me. That's hope. That is biblical hope. And so... In verse 14, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those without hope. Those who aren't looking to God for the help they need, aren't looking to God for the happiness their hearts long for, they've lost hope. That's the faint-hearted. And so we need to encourage our own hearts and we need to encourage others to put their hope in God for the help they need and the happiness their hearts long for. Well, as I wrap this up, let me just highlight the fact that faith, hope, and love are the measure of success. If you read in chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that uh, they give thanks to God in in verse 2, always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, 
in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. He says, we thank God for the faith, hope, and love we see in you. And yet he calls them to pursue more faith, hope, and love. But that's an indicator that what he was looking for wasn't the size of their congregation or the kind of car they drove or the kind of work they did. He was looking for faith and hope and love, which means that's what God is looking for in our lives too. That's the measure of success. We have to ask ourselves, what was my faith, hope, and love like in this past year? Was I resting in Jesus for pardon and perfection? Was I hoping in God for my help and my happiness? So I pursuing love by sacrificially doing what God calls me to do for the good of others? Is that my prayer for this new year? Am I praying for greater grace to rest in Jesus, for greater grace to hope in God, for greater grace to lay down my life to love other people? Um, Calvin would say that he, Paul, omits nothing of what belongs to spiritual armor. For the man that is provided with faith, love, and hope will be found in no department unarmed. If we have faith, hope, and love, we are ready for the battle. We're ready to engage whatever comes our way. But again, in light of what we've said at Christmas time, we can't live this way without receiving Jesus. When it says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, we are of the day. Who does the we refer to? Well, in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So the we are those who believe in Jesus, who believe the gospel. Then he says back up in verse 1 of chapter 4, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more so that those who believe in Jesus and those who live to please God are the we who are of the day. And he says that we are to work and fight and endure. And the question is, how do we plan to do that this year? As individuals, as families, as a church, how do we plan to work and fight and endure to grow in faith and hope and love? Then finally, have we received the gift? Because if we haven't received the gift of Jesus by embracing him as our Lord and Savior, we cannot live this way. But the good news is he's an able and willing Savior for every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we seek to appropriately evaluate our lives, our last year, and appropriately respond to the gift of the new year that is upon us. We pray that we would receive and rest and rejoice in Jesus as the gift that he is to us and for us, and that you would help us this year to work and fight and endure that we might grow in faith and in hope and in love by your grace and to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In a minute we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if you have received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then we encourage you to join with us in this celebration.